Good morning. All right, so we're going to have a, um, a quick, uh, what we call a preambulatory set before um, Sinclair Ferguson. I went to grad school to learn that word, so that's why I'm using it. And then um, we'll go through a slide or two. We're going to go to the video from Sinclair Ferguson's on baptism. Some of you are, may have already seen this uh, from that um, series, The Christian Life. Uh, but it's a quick one. It's 25 minutes, and then I'll restart. So I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and start with the uh, slides first just to explain where we're going with this. Okay. All right, let me pray for us real quick. Gracious Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for a Sabbath where you give us rest after a busy week. We thank you also for your word. We ask that you would have us remain in it, that we would always look to it as our only rule of faith and life. And we thank you again for this congregation and your word and your faithfulness to us. In your name, amen. Okay, so sacraments, means of grace for the church, and then Sinclair's Ferguson baptism. So this is the preambulatory set. Again, grad school to get that word. Um, this is just when you throw ideas in that you'll probably see from the video, so then you'll connect with them and go, right, he mentioned that. So just think about the things about controversies that he mentions, uh, biblical scope, then again, the scriptural considerations that he's working through with this discussion on baptism, benefits to believers, and then the different perspectives, okay? So again, you'd rather hear Sinclair than me. So uh, we can go to video now, and then um, I'll kind of wrap up. At a point in our studies together on what it means to have good foundations in our Christian life when we're thinking about what Christians often call the means of grace. And we've come now to two of these in particular that are often referred to as the sacraments. And I want to emphasize again, especially in the case of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that these are not instruments we use to get grace. These are instruments God uses in order to bring us into fellowship with Himself and to know Him. And we're going to look in this study and then in the next study at the two sacraments or ordinances of the New Testament, the two special signs of the gospel, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But first of all, I think there are some things that we need to say in general, partly because, as you know, there have often been debates and controversies about both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so often Christians come and their first question is about the controversial issues. Usually when people's first question is about the controversial issues, it's a sign they've never really grasped the fundamental issues. And so it's not my purpose in this study or the next study to deal with matters of controversy, but to try and help us understand why it is that God has given us these physical realities that we often refer to as the ordinances of the gospel or sacraments. And in order to understand them, 
we need to go back to the beginning. And by going back to the beginning, I mean going back to the beginning of the Bible. Have you noticed that people often start with baptism or the Lord's Supper, and then they want to discuss the controversial issues? What they need to do is to go back to the beginning and to notice that there is something very characteristic about the way in which God reveals Himself and His purposes. He does that by means of promises, which we often see in the Bible are His covenants. When He pledges Himself and He gives a promise to us, and He pledges, as it were, on His own existence that He will keep these promises. And if you read the Bible from the beginning to the end, which is quite a good way to read the Bible, as well as from the end back to the beginning, you begin to notice something that every time God makes one of these special promises, without exception, He, alongside that promise, gives a physical sign of the promise that He has given. Uh, You see that already in the Garden of Eden. God gives Adam and Eve certain promises, and He gives physical signs, these trees that are related to the promises. You move on to the flood and to this new covenant or promise that God makes with Noah, and God adds a sign to that promise. Now, that sign doesn't make God's promise any more trustworthy, does it? God's Word is God's Word. From one point of view, God could have said, well, I've given you my Word, take it or leave it. But He understands our frailty. And so, you remember, he says to Noah, Noah, there is this bow in the sky, this rainbow, and whenever you see that rainbow, I want you to remember that I am remembering my promise that I will never again flood the earth. And so, you can imagine the village we live in was flooded a couple of years ago. Half of the villagers lost their homes in the flood. And whenever the rains have come again in the last two years, you can sense the nervousness that there will be this renewed destruction. You can imagine that would be true for Noah. When is this going to happen again? There is the rain. And Noah looks up and he sees the rainbow. And he is to remember, God is remembering His promise. You notice what that sign is? It's a sign to which Noah is to look but it's a sign of what God does. God remembers His promise. The same is true when God makes His covenant with Abraham. He gives to Abraham and his family a sign of that covenant. You remember how Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 4. He says, when Abraham was justified by grace through faith, when he was constituted righteous in God's presence, God gave him this sign. It was a sign of the righteousness that God gave to Abraham, and Abraham received through faith. Now, just let your mind linger on that for a moment, because it's it's very important to understand the dynamic and the direction of what Paul is saying. Notice he is not saying circumcision 
was a sign of Abraham's faith. He was saying circumcision is a sign of God's gracious justifying. That's what it's a sign of, which Abraham receives through faith. And that's a real clue to us for understanding what we call the sacraments, that they are first and foremost not a sign of our response to God's Word, not first and foremost a sign of our faith, but signs of the gospel that draw from us the response of faith. And because God understands that we need these signs, He gives these signs to us. Now, I've met Christians, I've had students who have said, I, I, you know, my faith is strong enough, I don't really need these signs, so I'm fine without them. And I say two things to them. I say, first of all, if God gives you signs, you need signs. Argument over. But then I'll say to them, I'd just like you to do a little experiment. Are you married? Yes, I'm married. Um, here's my experiment. For the next six months, from time to time, say to your wife, honey, I love you. Do not touch her. Do not embrace her. Do not kiss her. And then come and tell me how long it is before she explodes and says to you, do you still love me? And you say, well, I, I, I've been telling you every three days, sometimes every four days, that I love you. Isn't my word good enough for you? But you haven't embraced me. You haven't shown your affection for me. Signs don't matter? Of course they matter. They matter in our ordinary life. But we need to understand their significance. As you know, I'm not from around here. And it took me some time when people asked me out for meals in restaurants to understand something. In Scotland, when you're finished your meal, uh, you, you just leave the, the knife and fork on the plate. And time and time again, a waiter or waitress would come to me and say, are you finished? Well, I'd done what my mother said. I'd cleared the plate. Obviously, I was finished. Could he not see I was finished? What was the problem? The problem was I hadn't put the knife and fork in the American direction. And then when I understood the significance of the sign, I learned how to communicate the reality that I'd finished the meal to the waiter. And baptism and the Lord's Supper are just like that. There's a sign, and when we understand the significance of the sign, then like a kiss between a man and his wife, and vice versa. That strange, wet, sometimes noisy motion doesn't only signify love, but strangely enough, it seems to be an important way of communicating love. And that's the kind of world we live in. We live in a world where there are some signs that point us to a reality that is absent. But there are other signs that we have and use that when we understand them, we understand they not only are telling us something, but they're the means we use to communicate the reality 
to the person who understands the significance of the sign. And that's how baptism and the Lord's Supper work. They are signs. There's nothing inherently magical about them. The water is water. It usually comes out of the tap. The bread is bread. Somebody somewhere baked it. The wine is wine. Nothing happens to any of these elements. But when we understand a gospel understanding of them, they not only silently preach a message to us about what Jesus has done for us, but when we respond to these realities in faith, just as when we respond to the verbal signs of the preaching of the gospel in faith, then we're able to enjoy and enter into the reality to which the signs pointed. And this is very important for us, I think, if we're going to benefit from baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I say that because in my experience, it's often been true that when you say to Christians, what did your baptism mean? Or what did it mean to you to go to the Lord's table? They start talking about themselves. And it means that they're, they're going about it the wrong way around. Uh, they're thinking about what has happened in them. And the dynamic of baptism and the Lord's Supper has been kind of thrown into reverse gear, which is why often if you ask a Christian, how much has your baptism meant to you this week? They'll give you a blank stare. Because as far as they are concerned, the important thing about baptism was that they did it so many years ago in the past. And it has no real ongoing function in their present Christian life. But then when you turn to the New Testament letters, what do you discover? You discover that baptism is such a sign of what God has done for us in Christ that in a sense, it hovers over the whole of our Christian lives. And it's not so much that I followed Jesus into the waters of baptism. It's what Jesus did for me in the waters of baptism that was signified to me in the waters of my baptism that I take hold of by faith, not only when I was baptized, but for the whole of my Christian life. Now, if we're going to understand what baptism means, I suggest to you that there are a couple of things that we need to try and work at together. The first of them is this. We need to understand the baptism of the Lord Jesus. You remember when Jesus came to the Jordan and um, he asked John to baptize him? And, and somehow or another, John understood well enough that the Messiah did not need to be baptized. And so he, he had this argument with Jesus. And, and uh, you know, his, his strongest argument was, Jesus, you don't need to be baptized by me. If anybody's going to be baptized here, I'm the one who needs to be baptized. And Jesus said a very interesting thing to him. You know, he says, John, do it, even although you don't fully understand this do it. Now, what was happening when Jesus was baptized? John's baptism was a baptism for sinners, wasn't it? 
And the symbolism was that as you, as you came to the River Jordan and John baptized you, how he did it is really irrelevant. When he baptized you, it was symbolic of God, as it were, washing away your sin and your guilt into the River Jordan. If I can put it this way, the River Jordan was full of the symbolism of the guilt of sinners. That's why Jesus said he needed to be baptized. It's as though what Jesus was saying, now, John, that water that is full of their guilt, that is the water in which I need to be baptized. And so, symbolically, Jesus is being baptized with waters of divine judgment. You remember how he later on says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I'm, I'm held in until it's accomplished. What was he talking about? He was really saying his baptism in the Jordan was a sign of his baptism for our sins on the cross of Calvary. That was the real baptism of which his baptism in Jordan was the sign. And so, do you see what was happening in the River Jordan? Those who were baptized were being—remember the words Jesus uses—being baptized into the name of Jesus, and Jesus was being baptized into the name of sinners. And this is what baptism points to. It points to the way in which in His baptism on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. In His baptism on the cross, Jesus was baptized into my name as a sinner in order that I might be baptized into His name as the Savior. And of course, that's exactly what He says, isn't it, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, what is baptism? Baptism is a naming ceremony in which I, who have been reared in the family of Adam, are given the sign of the new family of Jesus Christ, and I am being named for Jesus Christ. Now, uh, this is the Western world. I imagine everyone here has actually gone through a naming ceremony. Um, there, there is a law in Scotland that you have to name your child within a certain number of days. I almost rendered one of our children illegitimate by not getting the name in in time. What happens? You go along uh, to the official, and the official says, filling in the papers, what is the name of your child? And apparently, at some point, my parents had decided the answer would be Sinclair Buchanan Ferguson. What did that ceremony do to my heart? Absolutely nothing. But in another sense, it has determined the whole course of my life. I don't hear the name Sinclair without. And certainly I don't hear the name Sinclair Buchanan Ferguson without. That's who I am. Strange though it may seem, I don't know who I am unless I am Sinclair Buchanan Ferguson. 
But the giving of that name did nothing to transform my heart, but by the same token, the fact I was given that name has been, as it were, the, the parameters of the life that I've had to live. It's true I could have said to my parents, I no longer wish to belong to this family. I'm going back down to that office and I'm going to say, get another form and ask me another question. And I'll give you a completely different name. But my whole life has been determined by that. I could have rebelled against it. I could have rebelled against the family for which I was named. Or I could make that my own and live as somebody who belonged to that family. I like our parents saying to us, now, remember when you go there, you're a Ferguson. And the same is true of baptism. The waters of baptism do nothing to transform our hearts. And yet, according to the teaching of the New Testament, being baptized means that a new family name is placed upon you. And having that family name does determine the whole course of your life. In a sense, having that name is a reminder to you of all that God, the Trinity, has done for you in and through Jesus Christ, and is willing to do for you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, what faith does is respond to that, to say, oh, Heavenly Father, to think that you have sent your Son to be baptized on the cross, that I might be baptized with forgiveness. Oh, Father, to think that you have promised to give me your Holy Spirit so that my inner life may begin to match the name that I've been given, and it will become clear that I really am a child of God and belong to the Heavenly Father. And so, the whole of the Christian life is going to be lived in the context of this new name that has been given to me. The whole of my Christian life will be determined by it. Remember how Paul spoke to the Romans about this in Romans chapter 6? And he, he asked a very interesting question, at least I think it's an interesting question. He says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? and raised into His resurrection in order that we may walk in newness of life. You notice what he's saying? He's not saying, eh, do you remember that you followed Jesus into the waters of baptism, and you did that five years ago or ten years ago? Do you remember that you did that? No, he's saying, don't you understand what your baptism means today? Don't you understand that your baptism tells you what your name is, that you're somebody who belongs to Jesus Christ, and you have been under the dominion of sin, and now through sharing in His death and resurrection, that dominion has been broken. And therefore, in the light of the fact that you've been baptized, live in a baptized way. And in the same way, he says the same in Colossians chapter 2 and 3. He says, now, if you understand what it means to be baptized, then live in the light of that. So, put off what belongs to the old and live out what belongs to the new and live 
as a baptized Christian. So that baptism is not just something that I did. It's not just something that was done to me. It's the sign of a new name that's been given to me. I've been named for no other family than the family of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What a family that is to belong to. And so as a member of that family, I will live for the glory of the Father. I had a wonderful student years ago from the Far East, extremely able student, and I got to know him quite well. And uh, he was always known to me as Timothy, but I knew that wasn't his real name. I mean, he didn't. He looked as though he had a name that I probably wouldn't be able to pronounce. And so I said to him rather daringly one day, I said, Timothy, what's your real name? He taught me a lesson. He gave me a little smile. He said, Timothy. I said, no, no. I said, come on now. You're pulling my leg. What's your real name? He said, Timothy. I said, what was the name your parents gave you? And then he gave me the unpronounceable name. Oh, I said, that's your real name. He said, no, Timothy's my real name. That's the name I was given when I was baptized. And he was conscious he'd been taken out of one family and now lived in the light of his baptism as a new creature in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to know that that's the meaning of baptism. It's always a shame having to follow up after Sinclair Ferguson. Um, No, but he brings great wisdom. We had talked about... um, a little bit about that list with controversies um, and then how much I appreciate Sinclair not diving into controversies of baptism which can obscure the, the goodness that it should be to us spiritually but instead just going back to scripture and looking at the, the entire counsel of God from the covenant of grace to where we are now. So it's important to do so that we're not wrapped up into questions of mode, um, questions of, you know, uh, that other maybe denominations or other sects have sort of wrestled with, but in just in, instead following um, the scriptures we hope we do. So um, the relationship of covenant to sacrament is definitely a start here. So how does God interact with his people with word and sign in general? Um, I have a couple up there. So uh, garden, that's one. What, what happens in the garden that God gives a sign in Genesis 3 when he deals with Adam and Eve and the sin that they've committed? Do you remember some of the signs that go on? It's, it's kind of written in the text but not directly. Anyone want to throw one out there? Yeah, of what? That's right. That's right. So the sign, suddenly they were covered with, before they were covered with, you know, whatever. And then suddenly animal is covering them. So there's a first sacrifice. So it's a sign that there has been a covenant made and that God is fulfilling that covenant. What about, uh, again, you guys can go through these. Uh, Abraham is pretty easy. That's 
circumcision, right? Genesis uh, 15, but then 17 with circumcision. Egypt, um, the prophets of Baal, my favorite story of the entire scripture, right? So, you know, delivering word, but then God gives sign by burning the sacrifice that water has been placed on by the prophets of Baal and still burning that to show that um, Elijah speaks for him. The feeding of the 5,000, what's the sign there of what? Yeah, but of what bread, right? Which is a foretelling of, of uh, Christ making Passover into the Lord's Supper, right? And then, um, and you know, I mentioned with the Lord's Supper, but the signs go on. The Lord does not always use signs to, to marry to words, but it is a, um, it, it's a system that, that he does. And again, Sinclair had referred to that as um, because signs are helpful to us and we're a weak people. So when you get more specific about how does he use words and signs for covenants, we just define that as sacrament. It's not a word that shows up in Scripture, but it's just the word sacrament, meaning word sign in covenant. When he makes a promise and he's fulfilling the promise, we get to see a sign with that. And that was, again, in Genesis 17, we see a sign of circumcision. And then we see in the New Testament, circumcision now being baptism and seeing the sign of God's covenant with his people. So this is from uh, Howard Griffith, uh, my pastor at uh, All Saints Presbyterian in Richmond, he wrote a book called uh, Spreading the Feast. So he writes this in sort of the, the preamble. God authored or initiated sacraments as instruments alongside his word to communicate his grace to his covenant people. Just a very sound, thoughtful uh, sentence that can guide us as we work through this. Please. Did I go? Yeah, there you go. Okay, so circumcision and baptism is a sacrament. God's covenant with his people, and I'll just read again some of these. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. And that's Deuteronomy. And then, for this promise is for you and your children. And that's Acts 2.39. So, Howard used to do this, so I'm going to embarrass myself. He would say, when New Testament believers saw, for this promise is for you and your children, they were doing this. Because they've known throughout their entire history of being God's people or knowing of God's people that God worked in covenants with people. So when they see this and go, for you and your children, yeah, of course. No one looked back and goes, whoa, like what, the kids are involved? It's a complete assumption, and it's a throwback to how God started all of this in his covenant, okay? So it's not a new thing, it's just a standard thing, and it continues to go through in Acts 16 and Acts 18 when people are um, getting the mark of baptism, them and their households, them and their children, um, so it's a, just a, it's a normal thing within those things. So he placed um, a sign placed on the people of God or a declaration of belief going back to what Sinclair talked about. 
this is um, a sign that God is doing for us, a naming, and that should be consistent with how we feel even about our walk with the Lord. No one believes that we jump out of our own sin and our own depravity just because we're smart enough or we've read enough to become Christians. We shouldn't think that way if we do. We should think that God has rescued us from our sin because the scriptures say we were dead in our sin. So if that is true and then God has rescued us, it also is true that God names us and he fulfills the covenant that he's worked through his people with baptism. So it's not a, I am now a believer of Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized because this is my profession of faith. I grew up Southern Baptist, so we would say it was our first step of obedience. But it's not. It's God doing this work just as his work is to save all of us. Hopefully that makes sense. So Colossians 2.11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful workings of God who raised him from the dead. This is again his um, Sinclair reference, Romans 6, about being buried with baptism, but then raised with baptism. And that's also the symbolism from 1 Peter that's referring to Noah and the flood of water, right? So water is judgment, but then is resurrection for Christ and for us. And so Colossians is where we really see a solidification of circumcision is not the mark now of his covenant people, but baptism is that mark. And then when we read 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Stopping there, putting on your covenant glasses, okay? And again, glad this is a podcast. No one will ever see me doing that, all right? But putting on your covenant glasses, they're all saying, oh, of course. This is how God has treated his people from the beginning of time in covenant. And now they go, yes, we are part of this covenant. So it's not new, it's old, and they all nod in agreement, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are uh, God's people. And the glory of this covenant that he's introducing, this new covenant that represents the everlasting covenant of Genesis, is that it's not in a nation where you're only circumcising those that are born within the nation right, of those tribes. But now what happens? It's expanding across the world. And that's why the Great Commission makes all the sense in the world for us. Going out into all the world baptizing, right? It's not like that's just a cool thing to say from Christ. It's completely connected to we have a nation that has the covenant and now out into the entire world. So we were not a people, but now we're a people, a holy nation.
Okay, so the sign of righteousness of faith that Romans 4 talks about, one of the most helpful verses for us as believers, because then we go, well, because the, the discussion that happens in Romans is, was Abraham found righteous in faith before or after circumcision? What's the answer there? Before. He is circumcised after he is found righteous in faith. So that reminds us that, it, that circumcision is a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith, not of faith. So this relieves us of the potential danger for all of us where we would say baptism is a sign of faith. So we baptize because, you know, I baptize, uh, we have Kirk and Knox baptize as, as infants, and it's a sign of faith. It's not. It's a sign of the righteousness of faith. We are naming them based on God's promises. So where faith is uh, present, which is to say where Christ is, the sacraments convey Christ, not empty signs. So baptism conveys justification, sanctification, glorification, but can do nothing without the pairing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the life of that person. We're, we're tight on time, so I'm going to give you a go. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and the reform position is, is that it does not say it is a sign, it is a showing of what has already happened right. through, through the act of baptism. So, it's very, very important to understand the distinction between the Roman Catholic Orthodox yeah. and the reform position. What keeps us safe, just like, and thank you, Gene, what keeps us safe is, just as Sinclair described, and, and I've been saying, it's the pairing of the word, Christ with the sacrament. When you go too much word and skip the sacrament, which can happen within some denominationals of kind of an empty sign, okay, this, um, this baptism is because I'm a uh, first step of obedience, or as even communion, as a, as a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, that is pulling towards the word. And then when we pull towards the sign, this mysticism of sign work, you know, um, Catholics would say that the baptism is the removal of original sin, but without the pairing of the word. And I don't think either of those, and again, those are brothers. They're sisters in Christ. But I would say the word and sign needs to be paired together. This is also why it's connected to the membership of the church. We are not saying in the Presbyterian tradition that you must be baptized, you must have a proclamation. You're making your profession of faith, but the baptism, again, is a sign that is being placed on you by God. And so that's why it represents the membership, just as in Genesis where circumcision represents the membership uh, within God's family. Okay? And then... God's assurance of saving benefit of Christ and the covenant. It's not an empty sign. It is a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. And who has faith? 
those that have been saved through Jesus Christ. So these are, again, you see so many of these places where you could spiral into error, but we shouldn't fear the error so much that we just don't talk about the benefit of baptism. So when you are called to remember your baptism, it's not remembering that you made a profession. It's to remember, and for your children, even some children that we love but have kind of gone off and done their own thing, some that are, are wayward, but we remember their baptism because it's a God's sign on them for the righteousness of faith, and we pray that they would be um, in union with Christ. Okay, uh, We're out of time, and I know this is a polemic within a lot of different uh, traditions, so we can, um, I'm here next week, we'll do Sinclair and the um, Lord's Feast, and then we can bring up some questions as we have them, okay? Let me pray for us real quick. Gracious God, thank you for uh, Sinclair in his uh, uh, kind and gracious explanation of the, of the covenant and of you, the signs that you've given us. We ask that we would only follow your scripture and that we would uh, pray and meditate on this. In your name, amen.